extra weight. Incoming, Walter, incoming. No, no, incoming, no. Oh, I realized. You washed up. Sorry? Welcome to the island of discarded women, my friend. I used to be somebody. Are you that woman on the radio? Your island job is peladora de papas. Uh, sorry, what? Potato peeler. 87% match for uh, your skills. Okay, that's not... Anyway, what is the second best match then? Host of the Island Podcast. Are you kidding me? No, no, see, that's me. That That's perfect for me. That's the job... Dana, 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 welcome, welcome to the island. Wow, it is gorgeous out here tonight. Yeah, isn't it? Wow, the waves, <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. If I'd known how pretty it was here, I would have washed up a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's kind of like Barbie land without all the pink. Mm, mm. Yep, and you yep. have actual walls on your bungalows we do. and real food. Yep, 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 and flat feet. I mean, I mean, you know, not the high-heeled feet because sand and high heels, oh, not, oh, good, not, not good, good, not good, not good, not good. Not and good. no smiles. What do you mean? Wait, wait, wait. People aren't smiling at you? What do you, what do you mean? No, you... no, 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 no. I mean like the plasticky smiles. Oh, yeah, 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 no, 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 no. We only smile for real here. No, 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 no. <laughs> Way too many years of, you know what? You should smile more. Hmm. You know, that'll wipe those fake smiles off your faces. Oh. In a yeah, 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 yeah. yeah right. And no Ken's here, no, right? No, no, no Ken's, no Ken's. Okay. Well, actually, okay, okay. Let me clarify. It's not that Ken's are not allowed on the island. I mean, you know, hey, we need our male allies, right? We need our male allies, right? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. But, you know, just, I mean, you know, we're trying to discover our own voices. And sometimes that means just need to kind of maybe step away from the atmosphere that, I don't know, continues to leave us out of the power-sharing equation. Very diplomatic way of saying it, Sue. Yeah, thank you. Mm. I wrote that. Yeah. Thank you. Is this a plasticky smile? <laughs> yeah? Definitely. Yeah, okay, Definitely. Good, good, good. Oh, you know what? You know what makes me think of? The scene near the end of the Barbie movie where Ken asks the Supreme Court Chief Justice mm. if they, you know, if men could have a seat on the court. Just one. Can we have just one seat, please? Mm -hmm. And she looks at him and she says, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> and he's clearly disappointed. And she oh. goes, oh, okay. Maybe you can have a seat on a lower court. <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg was asked, when do you think there will be enough women on the court? Mm -hmm. And she says, when there are nine. Yes. Yes, exactly. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. And yes. And thing is, and here's the thing. Everyone thought she was being so funny. Oh, isn't that funny? You can have nine women on the court. You can't well, do that. I mean, there were nine men forever. Forever. And what cracks me up about that whole thing is all these pundits trying to decipher what mm. she meant. Mm -hmm. What did she mean? She meant she nine. Yeah, she meant nine. She mm -hmm. meant nine. No, 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 no. They were spinning in circles. Was she trying to just make a specific point? Was she being facetious? No. No. She meant nine. No, she meant nine. She meant... I mean, the high court, she said, has been nine men until just recently. Mm -hmm. So why can't there be nine women? Right. And it's so odd that it's assumed that we're being funny or mm. facetious or satirical when we say things like there should be nine women on the Supreme Court. Or there should be a woman president. Right, right, because that is so funny. Oh my God, is that funny, right? <laughs> I just love those people that say, they agree, it's time, oh, it's so time. Mm. It's so time for a woman president. But when they're asked if they think Kamala Harris 
would be a good president mm-hmm. if, you know, for some reason, she had to step in for Joe Biden, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, my gosh. They trip all over themselves coming up with reasons why. No, 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 no. Kamala. Kamala, she's just, she's, she's just not ready. She's not ready. She's not. No, she wouldn't be a good president. She's, she's you know, she just doesn't have... She's way too too black. No, 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 no. That's that's not it. No, 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 no. She's 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 just that's fine. She's she's just not. She's not. She's not. She's not male. Well, she can't do anything about that. But um, she's uh, she's. I mean, well, okay. What does she actually do? I mean, she's the vice president of the United States, but what, she hasn't done anything. Well, she has worked in close partnership with the president to get America vaccinated. Well rebuild our economy, reduce child poverty, and pass an infrastructure law that will lift up communities that have been left behind. Well, okay. And she has led the administrative efforts to rallying broad coalitions to protect the freedom to vote, expand workers' rights, to organize the collective bargain, and stand up for women's rights, yeah, but, uh, including supporting women in our workforce, what, addressing the maternal health crisis, and defending productivity rights. Wow. She has also played a key role in engaging world leaderships and strengthening our nation's alliances and partnerships. See, she I- takes a leadership role and travels all over the country addressing key issues from gun violence to delivering climate action to fighting for freedom to learn more and teach America's full history. And she just has been appointed to oversee a brand new Office of Gun Violence Prevention. Okay, okay, okay. But besides all of that, what does she actually do? I mean, really, what does she do? Yeah, it's useless. It's useless. It's, I mean, that's what they say. You know, Hillary got the same treatment. Mm. Oh, and by women voters. Oh, they're, oh, I'm all for a female president, but Hillary's not right. No, she's not no, right. She's, no. she's just, she's not warm. Uh, she's, she's awfully rehearsed. Um, oh, she's so smart. Oh, and that's a bad thing. Yeah, that's a bad thing. <laughs> it's, just, it's, all, it's just all crazy making. It's all crazy making. It's all. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> what? Do you think we'll ever get there? A woman president? Yeah. Ever? I don't know. Sorry, I really don't know. I just fear, I don't know how even to describe it. Like Our second class status in this country is just way too ingrained in the whole belief system. That's depressing. I'm sorry. But hey, in Barbie land, there's a woman president. Mm-hmm. Yep. And nine women on the Supreme Court. Yes. And that movie, written and directed by Greta Gerwig, raked in the biggest box office opening weekend ever for a woman director. Plus, it pulled over $1 billion yep. in the first 17 days, making it one of the highest grossing films ever by anyone. By anyone, by yes. Anyone. Yes, yes. And so that is worth celebrating, right? Is that worth celebrating? Is it worth celebrating, right? Am I right? Am I right? Sue. Am I right? Sue, wait, 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 you're wait. smiling that plastic smile again. I know. I know. It feels better. It oh. makes me feel a lot better. You should try it. You should try it. Really? See, try it. Wow. See? What do you think? See? <laughs> it does, does it, help. Doesn't it? I told you <laughs> yeah. it would. I told you it would. Yeah? I mean, my face kind of hurts now. Yeah, it does hurt a little bit. But you'll get over it. You'll get over that part. Yeah, you'll get I, used to it. I hope. Yeah, you will. Just keep smiling. Keep smiling, Dana. Keep smiling. I love smiling with you. I love smiling with all of you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Zippy Lassie. Thank you, Dana Lee Thompson. Thank you so much.
Okay, so on Friday, October 6th, 2023, the Nobel Peace Prize was awarded to Nargis Mohammadi, the Iranian activist who's worked tirelessly on behalf of women's rights and decency in Iran. She has been jailed repeatedly over the last decade in an attempt to silence and punish her activism and is currently serving a 10-year sentence for participating in the uprising last year that was spurred on by the death of the 22-year-old one woman who died in the custody of the country's morality police. Nargis is enduring brutal conditions in prison but still organizes prison protests and leads weekly workshops for female inmates about their rights, if you can believe that. She hasn't seen her husband or her 16-year-old twins, who now live in Paris, for over eight years, but she is determined to stay and fight. Her statement sent to the Nobel Committee reads this. Standing alongside the brave mothers of Iran, I will continue to fight against the relentless tyranny and gender-based oppression by oppressive religious government until the liberation of women. I hope this recognition makes Iranians protesting for change stronger and more organized. Victory is here. Women, Women life, freedom. Yes, yes. Nargis is the 19th woman to be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in its 122 year history. 19 isn't enough, but it's a start. Tonight we are honoring Nargis and so many women who are standing up and fighting against oppression and hate and lies and bullying in all forms. You know the world's gone crazy. We have a choice. We can be silent or we can lift up our voice. We can lay down our weapons and open our eyes and let the power of love, love materialize what we're going to do about it tonight. Stand up! District Attorney Fonnie Willis, who charged Trump and 18 other associates in a sweeping RICO indictment. Yes. She said this about the threats she is receiving. They're very grotesque things. I've been called pretty much everything but a child of God. Let's let that sink in for a second. A woman in Texas threatened to kill D.C. District Judge Tanya Chutkin, who is assigned to the trial for the January 6th case against Trump. The Texas woman also threatened to kill Texas Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee, all Democrats in Washington, D.C., and all people in the LGBTQ community. That is quite an agenda. <laughs> the Texas woman has been arrested and charged. Amen. Attorney General Letitia James, who is pursuing a massive civil fraud case against Trump, said that she was undeterred by the bullying. My message is simple. No matter how powerful you are, no matter how much money you think you may have, no one is above the law. And it is my responsibility, my duty, my job 
to enforce it. I will not be bullied. The Donald Trump show is over. Justice will prevail. And when our brother, brother just needs a helping hand And our sister is working hard But getting paid less than a man Well, when health care's humanity Becomes political insanity and they're just ginning up fear to sell more guns up in here. What we gonna do about it? Stand up! Stand up! Don't you know it? Right here, right now. Stand up! We're gonna stand on the side of love. Oh, yes, we will. Ruby Freeman and her daughter Shay Moss are the two Georgia poll workers targeted with lies spread by Rudy Giuliani. Ruby said she lost her name, her reputation, and her sense of security. Her daughter Shay Moss said she was afraid for anyone to know who she is. And she won't go grocery shopping with her mother. Fear her mom will call out her name in the grocery aisle. They sued Giuliani for defamation, and a judge just recently ruled in their favor, finding Giuliani liable. Yes. Cassidy Hutchinson, assistant to former chief of staff Mark Meadows, was being interviewed by Lawrence O'Donnell about her new book, Enough. During the interview, MSNBC received a statement from Mark Meadows accusing Cassidy of making up facts, sharing half-truths, and creating a false narrative of the life in the Trump White House just to sell books. She responded to the statement saying this, If Mark feels so strongly about telling the truth, I would encourage him to testify under oath, as I have done. Boom! With a candidate tries to trade on hate and an election is based on lies, lies and deception well when it's money money, money, money that always matters most mm -hmm. and then some fool tries messing with our right to vote what we gonna do about it right here, right now? Stand up! That's what I said. Stand up! Oh, yeah, yeah. Stand up! We're gonna stand on the side of love. Oh, yes, we will. Amanda Gorman, America's Youth Poet Laureate, was asked to react to the news that a published version of her inauguration poem was being banned from a grade school in Florida. The woman who complained about the book admitted that she had never read the whole thing and thought Oprah Winfrey was the author. No matter, the school district decided to remove it from the elementary school library anyway and move it to the middle school. In an interview, Amanda was accused of misusing the term banned, since the book was still available in the middle school library. Her response? There's a huge loophole that exists where we expect if a book isn't burned behind a school or thrown away, 
that's not a ban. Restrictions and removal are what's happening. Just because a book is technically still on the shelf doesn't mean the access to the book has been preserved. Beautifully said, Amanda. Yeah, beautifully said. In the LA County School District, a protest was organized after word got out that a book promoting gay themes was being read at a grade school assembly. The book, The Great Big Book of Families, contained one sentence about families who could have two parents who are mothers or two parents who are fathers. All the parents in the school were sent a letter giving them the option to have their child skip the assembly. No matter, the protest that followed waged a by grown-ups from other parts of the city who did not have children in this school entailed yelling and screaming insults at children, teachers, and staff for three solid days. Finally, the police intervened. After the protest, the school board president, Jackie Goldberg, a member of the LGBT community herself, gave an impassioned speech chiding the protesters. Quote, screaming and yelling for three days at the top of your lungs what do you think that did to every gay kid, every gay teacher, every gay custodian in that school? It made them afraid. How dare you make them afraid because you are. And that's it. Isn't that it? That's it. It's fear. The hate, the vitriol, the lies. It's all coming from fear. Fear of losing power. Yes. Fear of losing status. Yes. Fear of people who don't look like you. Fear of others living a life you don't understand. Thank you, Jackie Goldberg, for standing up and speaking the truth. You know there used to be things on which we'd all agree, yeah, that defined our country and not you versus me. Well, it's time to remember We need a new start And now we've got to do it, do it, do it This will tear us apart So what are we gonna do tonight? Stand up! Diane Feinstein, glass ceiling trailblazer who stood up time and time again. She was the first female mayor of San Francisco, steering the city through some of the worst tragedies, the assassination of Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk, and the AIDS epidemic that ravaged the city's gay community. She was the first woman elected to the Senate from California and the longest serving female senator to date. In 1994, she created a bipartisan agreement for a 10-year ban on assault weapons, a signature achievement. Yes. She also worked successfully mm -hmm, to outlaw the use of torture by the CIA mm -hmm. and secured the extension of the Violence Against Women Act until 2027. Yes, bless your bold, tireless spirit, Diane.
up for? Yell it out. Who are we standing up for? Give me a name. Give me a cause. Anybody, anybody. Trans kids. Yes, anybody. Native Americans. Yes, we're standing for Native Americans. Anybody else? Yell it out. Yes, yes, anybody else. Censorship. Censorship, okay. Go for it. Yes, yes, thank you, thank you. We're standing up for all of you and all of this. Yes. blow me away with that song. Thank you for letting us bring all those wonderful women into that piece. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for all, all your wonderful shout outs and, and, and comments, that was terrific. So tell us the impetus to write that song. What was going on when you wrote this? <laughs> well, there was a lot going on and I think not just for me, yeah. but for everybody around me in our country and there was a feeling of unease and worry and a long list of things that a lot of us were being affected by directly in our lives. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was, as a songwriter, most of what I perform out in the world and record are things that I've written. And sometimes I've just felt in the last few years, it's okay and appropriate for me to make a commentary on what is happening in my life yes, and in what is happening in others' lives. Yeah. And I found that that song in particular, we released it as a uh, single, and we had T-shirts made that said, Stand Up, Stand on the Side of Love, and we donated the proceeds uh, to the League of Women Voters. From it was, this was before the midterms, right? This the was the before, 2018 midterms. Yeah. Yes, this yeah. was before the midterms, yeah. and um, things just felt wonky and weird. Yeah, And so I just decided to go ahead and do that song in most, if not all, of my live performances everywhere across the country. And it was interesting um, when people actually listened to the words, what the response was. Um, because yeah. everybody would go, stand up. And yeah. I just was to get up and sing. And then I'd say, when the candidate tries to trade on hate. And they go, ooh. Oh. And I never say, you know... I don't tell people how to vote or who to vote for. Right. Um, and we, we did one show at a beautiful theater in Kansas City called the Folly Theater. And this song had just come out. And my whole band was there and we were playing it. And it was a, you know, place was packed, I don't know, 1,100 people. And at the end of the song, one guy in the front row stood up and he said, Make America Great Again. Mm. And, I, and you know what I thought? I'm not going to acknowledge that. I, yeah. don't, I don't receive that. Right. I acted as if I didn't hear it, and everybody in the audience was silent. Good. They gave him his space. 
He had his say when he realized he was the only one standing saying it, and I just proceeded to go on. I thought, this is how I can be compassionate, mm -hmm. yeah. and this is how I can keep saying what I need to say. Yes, 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 it's terrific. So I did. Good for you. Thank you. Good for you, good for you. Now, I know your advocacy or your own personal heart and soul shows up in some of your songs. Right. The song that you're going to do next which is called Bright Lights, and yeah. it's on your Winter Solstice album, which is for sale in the back of the house. Tell us about that song, the impetus to write that song. Well, I co-wrote that song with the former poet laureate of my great state of Kansas, Karen Miriam Goldberg. Okay. And she and I write together quite often. Um, and we were feeling uh, a lot of different things as we looked at what was happening in our world. But one of the things that we felt was... Um, important for our own mental health and survival was to take a look at what's possible mm -hmm. and to understand that there is always a solution or uh, a myriad of solutions to be had and we focused on that although we did talk about things that are actually happening in our world throughout we had decided for ourselves that the way for us to survive and be active in our communities was to focus on the solutions. Yeah, and what I hear from the, the song as well, which you're gonna sing in a minute, is there hope? You know, is there light out there? Is there hope? Mm -hmm. and, and I think we have to believe there's hope, mm -hmm. right? right? You know, I re referenced it earlier, but um, when we're thinking about what's happening in Israel and Gaza and still in Ukraine, yeah. and you wonder if, if there is any light or any hope, but that's gotta be a goal Right? Doesn't have to be a goal in some, in whatever form it takes. You know, whoever we are, um, it just feels like we need to keep that alive, right? Well, I feel like the hope and the actual light is within us. Yeah. So if not us, who? Right. If right. not now, when? when? Yeah, exactly. Okay, here is Kelly Hunt singing Bright Lights. I can see the future coming with its bright lights on and I don't know how I see it but I do it's just around the bend from where we have always been it is righteous it is ready it is their knees in Ferguson tear gas burns their eyes while memories of Birmingham ring true as children cross the border clutching nothing but goodbyes it's as if we can't remember they're the same as me and you But I can see the future coming With its bright lights on I don't know how I see it But I do And it's just around the bend From where we have always been It is righteous 
Kelly, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank you. Kelly will be back uh, for her third song, final song, after my conversation with Pat Miles. So uh, she'll be back to bring us home at the end of the show. Okay, here we go. There were two uh, major milestones that we experienced in our podcast family this past month. On September 8th, Day Yang, our delightful actor storyteller and one of our original islanders, had a beautiful baby girl. Yes. She named her Clarity. Clarity? Uh, Day said there were many twists and turns involved in order to get Clarity here, so I can't wait to hear all those stories. But after all is said and done, Mama and Baby are doing very, very well. So we celebrate that, yes. And she'll be back with us soon. Five days before that, on September 3rd, we got some very sad news. Our spoken word artist, Brittany Delaney, excuse me, had passed away. She has been in the hospital struggling with a series of life-threatening complications that stem from the lupus that she's lived with for years and was ultimately unable to survive. She was 33. So life and death in our island family within one week. Big emotional swing, as you can imagine. <clears throat> the cycle of life playing out 
right in front of us. Brittany's dream to find a path to remission from lupus was a frequent reference in the powerful poems that she created for our show. I often find myself trying to paint my own self-portrait, a beautiful collection of words that know nothing of terms like diagnosis or lupus or stroke, nothing but healthy crosswords and crossroads, no matter the direction you travel, vertical growth, diagonal reach, perpendicular peace, nothing but health in every life trajectory. I am still learning what it means to accept things not quite turning out the way I expected, and how to turn this turbulent dance with grief into something more like a waltz. I am trying to imagine myself on canvas. After Brittany's death, there was an outpouring of heartfelt comments written on her Facebook page. Loving tributes to how amazing she was as an artist, as a mother, as a human, and how much she meant to those writing. And you read every comment, and I'm thinking, Brittany should be seeing these. Did she know that she meant this much to all these people? She literally had 4,000 Facebook friends. So, you know, we do, we do. We go to these funerals, right, and these memorial services, and inevitably somebody says afterwards, you know who should have been here to hear all of these stories, right? Right? The person who's deceased. In the book Tuesdays with Maury, Maury goes to a funeral of a friend, right? And he thinks, oh, what a shame, <laughs> excuse me, that that friend couldn't hear all these wonderful things being said about him. So Maury decides to plan a living funeral. Throws it for himself in his living room. Family and friends telling the stories that they would have shared at his funeral. So when Brittany performed on our show with her fierceness and her brilliant gift for words, we would be transfixed. And afterwards, all of you would give her an immediate ovation, standing up, cheering, clapping. And I know she heard it. I know she definitely heard it and appreciated it. But did she feel it? Her poems were just deeply, deeply personal. And after saying yes to my call that she was available to do the next show, we would get on the phone and talk through the focus of that next show. And the prompts that I would give her, she would bring up all these wonderful stories that she would tell me. And they'd all become fodder for her new poem. Uh, there was the mentor who saved her life. There was the employable name her parents gave her. There was the many wishes for her two children. When the lightning strikes through my hair, I want to be a grandmother who spoils my littles, tells them yes to everything, and tells their parents that no ain't fair. I want to heal completely. I want to know what the end of the journey to be less broken feels like so I can write poems about completion and wholeness without tripping across metaphors that can't find a way to make sense in the current reality because I want to tell you I have, or I'm getting there, but I am visiting my children's rooms three times a night and saying I love you with the strength of goodbye every time they leave my sight because we can't have bad mornings. We can't afford to have a door slammed be the last music we made together. Devastatingly honest, full of stunning imagery, visceral in delivery, so maybe the ovation that she received after each performance was validation that she was being heard and seen and especially loved? I hope so. 
I know we were all much better people for just being in the same room with her. When thunder and lightning strikes Takes your breath away at night So fierce a timeless roar You remind me of that force Your Standing ovation, a story constellation. I wonder, did you know the power that you hold? Did you know you were special? Did you hear it enough? Did you go to sleep at night? Feeling like you were loved I hope you know you stole the show Every time you spoke Your heart poured on the pages Your words were so courageous If there's one thing that I've learned Though the body us first a story lives on for all of time and the ones you told are as good as gold my name is Brittany Delaney T-T-A-N-Y A-N-E-Y the middle of eight brown children born to roots originated south of the Mason-Dixon line, created somewhere else on island time. It was quite a trip here. My parents gave me the kind of name that makes it home at the end of the day. Gave me the kind of respectability politics that rejects my bones but embraces them surviving. They taught me to control the role of my Afro tongue because the job at the end of the day was to make it home alive. So if you see me popping my neck, if you catch me rolling my eyes, know that I am just trying to break free, like it's a part of my pronunciation, like I have a full-bodied name, the kind that sounds like my full lips, my wide nose, brown eyes and waistline, that lives in motion. Like each click and pop is the pouring of libations to ancestors who first swayed like this. Like a prayer was tapped into my lips like Morse code from God's fingertips. Call me by my sound. Call me by the love story that made me. Add breath between the letters T-T-A-N-Y. That is how you spell Brittany. Your a standing ovation, a story constellation. I wonder, did you know the power that you hold? Did you know you were special? Did you hear it enough? 
you go to sleep at night feeling like you were loved I hope you know you stole the show every time you spoke your heart poured on the pages your words were so courageous if there's one thing that I've learned Though the body leaves us first A story lives on for all of time And the ones you told Were as good as gold Tippy Lasky Tippi Lasky, thank you. Thank you for that beautiful, gorgeous song. Thank you so much. Dana, thank you, thank you for reading those pieces from Britney's poems so beautifully. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Dana. Now, please help me welcome my guest for the conversation, Pat Miles. Pat, come on up. Come on up. Hi. We did this. We did this. Okay, we did it. Wow. Hi. Thanks you wow. for coming. <laughs> How do you follow that? <laughs> well, yeah. Okay. Well, we, like I said, we had this sort of cycle of life thing happen in one week, and it was, uh, you know, I got the news about Brittany, and then a few days later, I get a text from Day saying she finally arrived. You know, the baby, and I'm like, whoa. Okay. So, uh, but that's. You know, yeah. you know what that's like. You know, yeah. I, I actually talk about that in my book because from one of the people I interviewed, who was a death doula, she talked to me extensively about the two sacred bookends of life. Yeah. We have birth and we have death. Yeah. And one of the things that I hope that I get across in, in the book that I wrote is that we, we prepare a lot for birth. We buy diapers, we buy food, we buy a crib, but we don't prepare very well for death. Yeah. And we, um, and be, we don't know when it's coming. Right. But, but we do know that 100% of us are going to die, right? Right. <laughs> we all come with an expiration date. We just don't know what it is. Yeah. So uh, preparing for the end of life, and we don't know, I mean, this was a sudden death. This was a sudden death. The and, thing is, and, was it what, if I can just say what was interesting about it is, and I, we were talking about this earlier, she had this very severe form of lupus, and she was she struggled with major life-threatening situations often, but there was always a survival. So when I get the call, it's like, no. No, no, she always survives. She doesn't die. She always survives. So it, it did feel really, really right. sudden. Yeah. Well, young people aren't supposed to die. Right. And young people don't think they're going to die. Right. And, um, and they do, And yeah. which is even more important for young people to prepare for the end. Yeah. Because I have talked to so many young widows who didn't have a will, yeah. didn't have a trust, didn't have an insurance policy. Um, in fact, the the charity that you mentioned, yeah. Rider Days Grief Center, I was there to sell my books at a walk they did this summer. And a young woman, 35 years old, came up to the table. She had four young kids, all under the age of 10, her husband died in the car with three of the children in the car of a massive heart attack. Wow. Died suddenly. They had no will, no trust, no life insurance. And she has four young kids. She's 35 years old. Her mom was with her, who's trying to help her. But 
the whole message I hope that I get across in my yeah. book is that you need to have these hard conversations. You need to do this hard preparation. Bucky always used to say to my kids, do something hard. So I am saying to people, do something hard. Make sure that as much as you prepare for a wedding or a birth, make sure you prepare for the other side of, of this um, cycle of life yeah. because it's just as important. And sometimes it's more important yeah. because you want to make sure those you leave behind are, um, are left just with some peace yeah. and enough time to grieve. Yeah. Yes. You know, I, um, I'm, I'm aware also that we're recording this for the podcast audience. So I know all of you, we all know Pat Miles, right? We all know Pat. Here's Pat Miles, everybody. <laughs> Thank you. But for our listeners around the country who don't know you, I want to go through a little bit of bio, and then we're going to do, talk about some of the stuff, and then we're going to dig back into your book um, big time. So um, just a quick bio here. So you've been a journalist since college, uh, and you were a female. Actually, high school. Oh, actually, high school. I was the teen editor. How come that's not in Wikipedia? I was the teen editor of the Daily Duckland Democrat. Whoa. In Kennett, Missouri, which is a the very... The Daily what? Daily Democrat. Okay. The Duckland Daily oh, Democrat. Oh, Duckland. I thought you said Duckling. Okay. No, the... What? Well, no, I mean, Duckling. I don't know. Maybe the Daily Duckling the is the Dunklin, name of this... The Duckland County. Okay, okay. I, I'm from a little town in southeast Missouri called Kennett. Okay. Which is extremely famous. Because Cheryl Crow is from Kennett. Oh, cool, cool. And I used to babysit Cheryl Crow. Wow. <laughs> so I'm even more so famous, famous there. Yeah, yeah you're more famous that. there. Yeah, exactly. So, okay, so since high school, and then you were female anchor on TV in the 70s when that was kind of a new thing for women, right? Across the country. And you've had almost 40 years uh, as an award-winning face of television, nightly news first, as our CBS affiliate here at WCCO, and then our NBC affiliate, CARE 11. Uh, you transitioned to hosting the daily radio show in 2003 after uh, a health crisis. Then you remarried and retired in uh, 2006, moved to Arizona with your husband, Bucky Zimmerman, as you mentioned. Um, you were inducted in the Broadcasters Hall of Fame in 2008. And in retirement, you and Bucky traveled the world. You go off, you do all these cool things, all these wonderful active things. And in 2019, following a family vacation, a family cruise, um, Bucky was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer and died three months later. And then after experiencing that um, and the multiple challenges and roadblocks trying to put his business affairs in order while deeply grieving his loss, you decide to write this book. And the book is called, for those of you listening, Before All is Said and Done, Practical Advice on Living and Dying Well. And it's full of stories of widows sharing their experiences. Of and how, widowers. And widowers of how they coped with sudden loss and what they wish they would have known beforehand, uh, as well as experts from the field. So all very moving, very, very important. So I definitely want to jump back in and talk to you about that. But I want to go back just one step to talk about um, being a female TV anchor in the 70s because that was trailblazing that was groundbreaking and you were you were young uh, you moved here from Colorado right and it was what 1978 and you started working for WCCO TV as a reporter and then became the co-anchor with Dave Moore and he wasn't happy about that no, no. He, he didn't he didn't need a co-anchor <laughs> And he told you that many he, times, right? He made that he made that extremely clear. And you know, honestly, yeah. I didn't blame him. I mean, 
here they brought in this, you know, 26-year-old newbie. Yeah. And he's like, really? <laughs> really? And they're like, yeah, Dave, we're interested in demographics, and you're getting a little older. And <laughs> he's like, well, this is not working out for me. <laughs> <laughs> but he... He had no choice. He had no choice. And it was the new thing, the wave, right? There was, you had, let's get some women on TV, right? Um, there's a great article in the Minneapolis-St. Paul magazine where you're talking about this. And, um, and at one point, Dave Moore says to you on the air, Pat, don't let the big words get in your way. Right. Right. That was during his, he was retiring, and um, it was his last broadcast. And at the end of the broadcast, I said, Dave, I just want to thank you. I owe so much to you. And he said, that's okay, Pat. He said, if you need me, I'll be around to help you if the big words get in the way. <laughs> so, and you know, at the time, it, uh, nobody even blinked about of course, that. Of course, of course. It was course, like totally of fine. Of course, of course. You did say, you said in this article as well, you said um, there was so much focus on the fact that you were a young woman instead of the fact that you had ability. And I thought that was really powerful. It's like, oh, look at this young woman doing this as opposed to like, Okay, look at this person with this ability doing this. Yeah. At one point in the, in the same article, you're, you're asked to compare yourself to Mary Tyler Moore. And, um, and you, you, said, you said in the article, wow, she got to go to a lot of parties and had a free time. <laughs> I didn't have that kind of stuff. So um, I was working at night. <laughs> right, exactly. Did you get that kind of thing before people were like, oh, you're like Mary Richards. You're just like Mary Richards. You go, um, no. Well, the whole CCO newsroom was kind of, the Mary Tyler Moore show was kind of modeled off the WCCO newsroom back oh, in that right. day yeah, 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 with yeah. Dave Moore and that whole, that whole group. So, yeah, there was, there was a lot of that. But Mary Tyler Moore was a producer, which was, you know, a, uh, yeah, right. a different job than what I was doing. I was more a reporter and an anchor. But um, yeah, it was um, it was an interesting time. I didn't know I was a trailblazer at the time. I just, yeah, that was an answer. I was about just that. trying. I was just trying no. to to make my way in the world. Yeah. So it didn't feel like oh, I'm really breaking this glass ceiling. No, right I on. knew it was harder for me. Yeah. I mean, I can remember. You guys know Don Shelby, right? I used to anchor yeah, yeah, with yes. Don. Yeah. yeah, great guy. Um, and I remember. Don and I were hired together to do the weekend news back in 1978 on WCCO. He was in Houston working, and I was in Denver working, and uh, Ron Hamburg, who was the news director at the time at WCCO, was going through videos of people trying to find an anchor team, and he came upon me and Don and thought, boy, they'd be a great team, right? Yeah, and yeah. so they hired us, and Don and I started working together. And after about six months, and now we're best friends, because we didn't know anybody here. He was the only friend I had, and, and I was the only friend he had. And I said, so, Don, um, what are they paying you? Oh. And then he told me, and I'm like, oh, Whoa. well, they're not paying me that. So I remember going into the news director, wow. and I said, hey, Don's making... And I don't remember what it was. It wasn't much back $3 then. $3 million. Dollars no, I think back then it was like $1 million. I think back then it was like $35,000, and I was like making twenty. Yeah. And um, I remember the news director saying, well, Pat, he's a man. No. 
seriously. Well, oh you don't God. remember of these course, times. Of course, of course. You I'm guys not. are too young. No, right? no, no, no. We do. <laughs> no, we do remember the times. It's just that in the lens that we that we have now, I feel like at the time we're like, That's yeah, just no, the way that it is. was. I went. I yeah. went out of the office going, well, he's a man. But you know, my revenge was at some point yeah. I did make more than Don. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. <laughs> yes. Yeah, baby. Um, so, okay, so it's, so at some point, you get married, you have two children, and you move to CARE 11 so you can be home at night. I didn't want to do the 10 o'clock yeah. news. Okay. And then in the late 90s, you're on CARE 11, and you're faced with this health crisis with one of your eyes. Mm. And this is your left eye, correct? Yes. Yeah. How can you tell? No, I actually <laughs> no, don't. this eye is red all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and I know that for a lot of us that lived in town with, with you, you know, working during that time, there was a lot of concern at that time as, as far as what was going on with your eye. I think there was a lot of confusion. Even today, yeah. I get people who think that I had LASIK surgery or something yeah. like that. It and nothing, like that's it? It had it nothing just, to do with, yeah. with that. Well, tell us what it was. It was just a... It was just a fluke thing. I yeah. had um, injured my eye with a Q-tip trying to get something out of my eye, an eyelash or something. And at the time, my brother-in-law was working at um, an eye consulting firm and he said you should go in and see this new doctor he just got a job here and he can give you an ointment for your eye so I did and when I went in he said you know Pat you have pinguiclium on your eye I'm like I have oh, okay what? yeah right pinguiclium spell that yeah, yeah. and um that's a big he goes, word yeah we need to we need to take that out we need to get rid of that well you it wasn't even visible unless you had a microscope sure but everybody in this room probably has pinguiclium and what pinguiclium is, is if you are out in the sun, if you ski or you golf or you are a farmer, you probably have pinguiclium because the sun causes you to form little tiny calluses oh. on the white part of your eye from oh. sun exposure. It's just like getting, you know, a sunburn. So he said, we need to remove that. So I'm like, okay, let's sure, remove right. that, okay, right? Yeah. And um, that caused... Um, I didn't realize it at the time, but when they remove something from your eyeball, you're actually awake watching this thing come at your eye, and then they're cutting this off my eye. So, don't ever do this. Ew, don't 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 get don't ever do. Don't farm, ski, or yeah, right. the other thing. <laughs> or remove your pinguiclium yeah, if you right. do. <laughs> so anyway, my my eyeball where they took this off ended up growing to my eyelid, and then they had to separate my eyelid from my eyeball and then patch the hole in my eyeball with um, I think it was uh, at the time that they did it some sort of fetal tissue which my body rejected and my eye rejected and then it caused this whole scarring issue in my eye so there was a year when my eye was sewn shut Wow! and I wasn't sure I was going to keep my eye but I ended up finding an unbelievable doctor after 16 operations wow yeah so i'm lucky that i you know look semi-normal today so i'm grateful always will be to this doctor yeah what a traumatic experience i know at the time you you sort of stepped away from tv news obviously to deal with all this and i'm assuming at the time you thought you would at some point heal and you recover and you would go back but um you couldn't you know i (laughs) I tell this to my closest friends, which you all are now. Yeah, we're all closest friends. So I am, got a patch on my eye. They had given me chemotherapy, thinking that it would keep my eye from scarring. It just made my hair fall out. So I am now turning 50. I am bald. My eye is sewn shut. 
I um, lost my career. I have two teenage girls. Yeah. And I think I might want a divorce. Wow. So I go to the... And that's it? I go to, the, I go to what, the doctor. Really? He goes, what's your problem? And I oh, go uh, through this litany. And he goes, I'm writing a prescription. <laughs> Wow, it's like, and here on the nightly news. So you don't go back. You had mentioned it at one point that you, that maybe all of the surgeries and all of this journey broke up your marriage. It did. Yeah. It was so stressful. And, yeah. Um, but my ex-husband and I are best friends. Oh, good. And yeah. um, we were, he's remarried, and he and his wife and Bucky and I traveled together. Oh, okay, cool. We had our last Christmas together before Bucky passed away. Oh, so yeah. they they have been absolute, unbelievable supporters to me yeah. through this whole journey. So we're still very close friends. Oh, that's sweet, yeah. You eventually went, a couple years later, you healed enough, and you decided to go back to radio. Right. And you, and you did a weekday show on, on WCCO Radio. Did that feel like... Yes, a place to go home to. Did it feel like a pivot that you needed to mm. make? Did it feel like I just need a job? I mean, what was going on at that time? When Probably you all of those things. Okay. But I had done radio uh, before I ever did TV. I had started in radio. And um, so radio, I loved radio. Mm. You know, I didn't have to do my hair or put on makeup or take the patch off yeah i just i loved radio well you was just saying you could you know it was all it was all just spontaneous you know and i did interviews with people and i loved that so yeah. i loved the radio show but then when bucky and i reunited um he wanted to live part-time in arizona he had a part of his business there and he had a house there so i couldn't do radio just six months a year right yeah, i had to right. do it so i ended up retiring in 2006 and we got married and i moved there so you and bucky had been uh, had been a couple for a few years um what 30 years before well i met he was one of he was my first boyfriend when i yeah. moved here in 1978 yeah and we dated for several years and then we broke up we were both working all the time he didn't was, you didn't you meet him in a blind date he he uh, was good friends with Jim Ramstead. Do you guys remember sure, Congressman sure, sure, Ramstead? Yeah. So Congressman Ramstead, Jim Ramstead, was, uh, and his sister Cheryl were very close friends of mine. And so Bucky called Jim Ramstead and said, could you fix me up with her? And okay. Um, okay. so Jim actually fixed me okay. up with Bucky. Yeah. And I went on a blind date, and I thought, this is not going to work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But he was persistent, and so we dated for several years, but we were both working so hard and building careers, it just wasn't, wasn't going to work out. But we always remained friends and stayed in touch. Yeah. So then you get back together, and you said something about it was a second chance that felt like a miracle. Yeah. Yeah. It was. I just love that. It was. Yeah. And so you moved to Arizona, and you guys become big travelers. And, right. And uh, play lots of golf. And then, uh, as I mentioned earlier, in 2019, you go on a big cruise with your daughters and their significant others. And you mentioned that he seemed unusually tired on that trip. Yes, and he was, and I say this, he was the healthiest person I knew. Bucky um, exercised every day. He had a 32-inch waist, which he reminded everybody of. <laughs> he, he ate well. He didn't drink much at all. He... Um, he was, had been a professional athlete, tennis player. Oh. Um, he was just the picture of health and the picture of energy. And so 
I didn't really, I sort of noticed it was unusual. He was sleeping a little bit longer and, um, there were just a few things I thought, well, he's just tired. You yeah, know, he's right, just been working really hard. Yeah, right. But when we got home, he decided he had been constipated on this cruise. And he decided to stop at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale and go to the emergency room. And that's when they diagnosed his cancer. Wow. So that was the only symptom he had. Wow. So, so he's diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer. And then, of course, that starts a spiral of all sorts of... Te- uh, more tests and are there other cures and are there other doctors right. and all that kind of thing. Right. And then three minutes later, he's gone. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I wow. really regret that we did all of that. I, I talk about in the book how my daughter, who's a social worker, she came to visit us and um, she kind of saw what was going on and she pulled me aside and she goes, Mom, have you thought about a death doula? Yeah. And I went, a what? She goes, have you thought about a death doula? I'm like, this is millennial mumbo jumbo. I'm not doing death doulas. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> like, no, we're not doing death doulas, whatever that is. <laughs> but after Bucky passed away, um, I interviewed death doulas and people yes. who used them for my book, and I asked my daughter to write me a letter and tell me why she had suggested that. And she wrote me this beautiful letter. She said, you know, Mom, when I got there and I saw that you were fighting, you and Bucky were fighting this war you were not going to win, yeah. I just thought it would be helpful for you to find somebody who could help you with acceptance, yeah. who could help you with this transition, who could help you facilitate these difficult conversations that you're not having with each other because both of us were in denial. Well, sure, and you're, and like you were, you were saying, you say this in the book several times, you're not thinking, oh, we've got three months, so how can we use our three? You're thinking, no, no let's keep, let's figure out. There's got to be something that, that will help or prolong or something, right? I mean, Absolutely. That, I mean, I think that's that's sort of a natural instinct, yeah. right? We, we, we want to well, thrive. But, but even more than that, I mean, I didn't want to have these conversations with Bucky because I didn't want him to think I was giving up. Right. Yeah. And he didn't want to have these conversations with me because he didn't want to scare me. Yeah, right. And so we just didn't talk about it. We just pretended it wasn't happening. And as a result of that, we didn't have those conversations. I still don't know what to do with his ashes. I didn't have any account numbers. I didn't have any passwords. I didn't know the code to get into his iPhone, which had all of the pictures from our trip. Um, There was was not a problem that I didn't encounter. And it was so unnecessary. It's so expensive and so emotionally devastating that at the end of that year of fighting, 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 fighting with, you know, American Express, fighting with his law firm, fighting with everybody about how to get information I needed or how Mm. to get things resolved. I got up one morning and I was so angry. I just thought, I cannot go on unless I get this information out to other people so that they don't go through what I went through. Right. And that's why I wrote the book. Everybody says, oh, Pat was a cathartic. No, it's horrible. Yeah. I was on the phone all day talking to people who lost somebody who had problems. Right. So, no, but I was so angry at what happened because we had failed to communicate. I had failed to pay attention. We had failed to have conversations. Mm-hmm. We had failed to plan. So I didn't want anyone else to have to do that, to have to go through it. Because when you've lost somebody and you're grieving, mm-hmm. 
you only have half your brain working. And when right. you have half your brain working and you've got all of these issues and problems to deal with, um, you're going to make mistakes. And it's going to cost you. And it's going to cost you not just financially, but emotionally. You talk about um, feeling like, well, we had wills, we had our trust, we're fine, we're good. Bucky was an attorney. Yeah, we're ready. You know, we've, we've planned. And then there was all these investments and, like you said, all these people calling. Well, and I had no idea what was in the will and trust. I didn't pay any attention. Yeah. I was like, how much longer till we get out of this meeting? <laughs> yeah, I've yeah. got really important things to do here. To go I've got to go to the dry cleaner. Yeah. You know, I mean, I talked to an attorney, a state attorney in my book, and she said, Pat, I have so many women. They look like a deer in the headlights in these meetings. And I just stop and I say, okay, we're going to stop. You're going to pay attention, and we're not leaving here till you get it, till you understand what's in this document and what it means for you. And, yeah. oh, wow, I wish I'd had her. You talk about writing the book that you wish you could have read. Right. Yeah. All right. Oh, boy. Right. You know, I did an event last night at Bethel Lutheran Church in Minneapolis. With Kathy Werzer. With Kathy Werzer, right? yeah. and it was sponsored by two people who are my financial advisors now who work for Merrill Lynch. And one of them, his name is Tony, he brought his father to the event and they were graciously bought and provided books to everybody who came to the event. Wow. And Tony texted me this morning. He said, Pat, last night during your event, my mother passed away. <gasps> wow. And he said, my father, who he had brought to the event with him last night, said, if we had not read your book, oh. we would not have the, a lot of the information we needed to help us deal with this. Yeah. So that, it, that was like, you know, wow, that's karma. That's, that's great payback. I said, well, Tony, think about how much you helped people by giving those books to them last yeah, night. Yeah, right. The book is full of stories. Like you said, you interview different widows and widowers and all the different stages of sudden loss. Mm. And whether that's uh, a sort of cognitive sudden loss, like through or eventually through dementia, that sudden loss uh, from an accident, a suicide, a military death, and all different ages, they're so open with you. They are. Well, you know, I was, I, I say this a lot, I was lucky because when I was doing these interviews, um, it was during COVID. Right. And I would right, call right. people, and they would actually answer the phone because they were at home. <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't have anything else to do. Right. So I had a lot of people who were willing to talk to me. And, you know, I, I was finding stories off the Internet, and I'd list, look at TED Talks. And um, I don't think there was a person I talked to who didn't agree to tell me their story. And I didn't include, you know, I only included, you know, X amount of stories in the book, but I probably talked to at least two or 300 people. And I will tell you this, there was not one person I talked to, not one, who did not encounter some problem, some crisis, some issue, as a result of not being prepared for yeah. the death of a spouse. Yeah. And then, like, it's, like you said, trying to navigate that while you're grieving. You don't yeah. want to do this stuff um, after someone is seriously ill. Right. You want to get this done while days are good, times are happy. Right. You want to get this done while people are in good health. You don't want to wait until someone is sick because if you wait until someone is sick, you have waited too long. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Bucky and I didn't have these conversations because we weren't worried about that. We were worried about can he get out of bed? Can he drink a bottle of water? Right. Can we get him to chemotherapy? We didn't talk about anything else. Yeah. 
No. And like I said, I just think that it's, uh, obviously these, the, the people in the book that you talked to felt so comfortable and safe with you, which I think is a testament to your, to you as a person, not, not only your journalistic skills and all that kind of thing. Well, it's I don't, powerful. you know, my, my opinion about that is that people don't talk about this because nobody's asking them Yeah, that's about true, it. right. Speaking of which, there's a point where you start talking about uh, being a widow. Yeah, I hate that word. Yeah. I Googled the root word of widow. You know what it means? To be empty. Oh. We need a new word. Yeah, yes. right. And how life seemed much more like a couple's world once you became yeah. a widow. Well, I was thinking about that when I looked at your island of discarded women. Yeah. There are a lot of older widows out there who feel like they are discarded women. Yeah. They lose their relationships. They don't. Um, it's it's difficult. I mean, when you think about being left alone when you're in your seventies and your eighties, it's tough for older women. Much yeah. tougher than than older men. Older men they marry the first casserole that comes along. <laughs> <laughs> and they're they're not bringing they're not bringing the widows casseroles. In fact, I remember shortly after Bucky died, I went back to Scottsdale. And I walked into the house, and it was, oh, I was just depressed, and oh, my gosh. So I called my friend Becky. I said, Becky, I just got back in town. What are you doing tonight? She said, well, as a matter of fact, we're having Phil over for dinner. You know, he lost his wife, mm. and he doesn't cook, so we're having him over for a nice, hot meal. Yeah. I'm like, oh, well, that's nice. Yeah. <laughs> Did you go? I wasn't invited. Oh, oh. oh. <laughs> So how are you doing? How are you doing now? How is all this now? Um, you know what I have come to understand is that grief is not something that leaves you. Right. It does not go away. In fact, one of the women I interviewed in my book, who had a terrible time after her husband died, um, and she said, "Once I realized that Bill was going to be sitting in that corner of my house for the rest of my life." He's not going anywhere. He's going to be sitting there. But he doesn't have to interfere with every second, every minute, and every hour of my life. He's not going anywhere. But I'm still going to be able to have a life. Yeah. So once you realize that grief is going to be with you always, it's going yeah. to change. Yeah. But it's not going anywhere. And I think, um, you know, grief changes you in ways you can't really describe unless you've gone through it. Yeah. But it's it changes you, you in so many different ways. You know, and life goes on. Life goes on. Um, and is writing the book, uh, I know it's it's like, oh, was this cathartic for you, Pat? No, it was very tough. But is writing the book and doing, uh, in, you know, talking to people about it, is that fulfilling? I feel like I've, I've helped a lot of people. Yeah. And that's why I wrote the book. Yeah. I really wrote the book because I wanted to get this information out there. Mm -hmm. And I know that this information has helped a lot of people. Yeah. And so, yes, I feel good about that. Yeah. Um, everybody says, oh, are you going to write another book? I'm like, do you know how hard it is to write a book? <laughs> it's really hard. Uh, but if I were to write another book, um, I would call it Let Me Live Again. And oh. it would be stories of people who have figured out how to come to the other side of all of this. Yeah, write that book. Yeah. Write Do that something book. hard. Dorothy, right? you write that book? <laughs> no, seriously. Or wait, maybe it's a small book. Or well, maybe it's a podcast. I don't know. I take MasterCard and Visa. Okay. <laughs> 
You know, we, we talked earlier in the show about the cycle of life. You mentioned that it was, wasn't it shortly after Bucky died that your, your first granddaughter was born? Grandson. Grandson. Who they named Miles. Who they named Miles. <laughs> so you were dealing with the cycle of life. Yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah I right. was. And how old is Miles now? Well, He's a little over a year. Yeah, wow. Got bright red hair and blue oh, eyes. Oh, wow, wow, He's a wow, pistol. wow. Wow. Well, Pat... Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing with us and coming tonight and being a part of this. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And so to bring us home, Kelly Hunt is going to sing one more song. I'm so inspired I can hardly sing. But I'm gonna I believe I have carried This burden Long enough And my My heart is ready, yes it is, to lay it down, 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 and rise up, oh, lay it down, and rise up, well, that I may walk a lighter path. Yes, and see a clearer way, and be unafraid to face a brand new day, oh, and sing my truest song, and know just what it is. Release and be free. Oh, I can hear, I can hear the whispers that are calling.
my true song I just want to know just what it is to release and be free oh may you walk may you walk may you walk a light of path may you see clear away may you be unafraid to face this brand new day oh may you sing 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 your truest song may you know just what it is to our show tonight. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you, Pat Miles. Thank you again to Pat Miles. Thank you, Pat. Thank you so much. Thank you, Pat. Thank you, Pat. And thank you to um, Dana Lee Thompson. Dana Lee, thank you so much, Dana Lee and Zippy Lasky. And thank you to our live captioner, Erica Cook in Oklahoma, and our engineer, John Robinson and Bonnie Allen. Thank you for taking our pictures. And our amazing volunteers, Suzanne Egley and Carolyn Denton. And thank you to the staff at Crooner's Supper Club. And a big thank you to Nancy Scott and David O'Connor for underwriting Kelly Hunt's transportation, accommodation, and fees. And yes, thank you. And please visit our website, islandofdiscoveredwomen.com, to hear all of our episodes and for inf information about our upcoming shows. And we will be back soon for another live Island of Discarded Women. Thank you, everybody. I'm Sue Scott. Thank you.